Hello, orgy piano accompanists and smirks on your face and all the ships at sea, and welcome to A Very Good Year, the movie podcast where we invite a guest to pick a favorite year of movies and talk to us about that year. I'm your host, Jason Bailey, and across the mic and across the country from me is my co-host, Michael Hull. Our guest today joins the small but proud fraternity of guests who are such an expert on their year in question, they wrote a whole ass book about it. So just as last season we had Cinema 62 author Stephen Farber and Michael McClellan, this week we welcome the author of Best Movie Year Ever, How 1999 Blew Up the Big Screen. More recently, he has hosted the narrative podcast Gene and Roger and Do We Get to Win This Time?, both of which are excellent for the Ringer Podcast Network. Here he is, the witty, the insightful, Mr. Brian Raftery. Hi, Brian. Hey, how are you? Thank you so much for doing this. This was really like kind of a no-brainer because your book on 1999 is so good and so smart and so well-researched and and also like just such an enjoyable read. Like it, it, it really, if, if you're listening to the show, if you like this show, it's kind of a must-have book. I read it when it came out. I smoked through it in like three days. Um, it's just, it's, it's just everything I like in a film history book. So thank you for returning to the topic uh which you thought you finished with several years ago <laughs> as we both know you're never done promoting the book you never really yeah. actually are thank you for the nice words my irish catholic self-loathing has has just gone down two notches <laughs> so i appreciate it <laughs> well let me also say i listened to do we get to win this time over the holiday break uh and it is really excellent uh so let's start oh, by plugging that since that's the most recent thing, tell us a little bit about that project for those who might not have had a chance to listen yet. Yeah, sure. I mean, it was actually a, a, the ringer came to me and said they wanted to do something about Vietnam movies and the impact they'd kind of had on. Mm. They didn't say Gen X, but I, that's sort of the audience, the, the, the kind of creative demographic there. And I was very excited because I came of age in the 80s. I know, I know people can tell by my voice that I'm only 19 or 20, but um, I came of age <laughs> at a time where like movies like Platoon or Hamburger Hill or, I mean, like Born on the Fourth of July even were just like, I would not be so crass as to say they were like the superhero movies at the time, but they were very big in the sense that me and my friends are all like, well, we're going to go see that. Right? We have to go see that. Yeah. And we were watching either in the theater or HBO, these incredibly dark movies about a war we did not even understand at the age of like 12, 13, 14. So... The series um, is basically a look at how these movies, how Vietnam was depicted in the movies over the decades. And I talked to a lot of filmmakers. I talked to Oliver Stone, who was amazing. Um, I talked to people who kind of had lived through Vietnam. I talked to veterans. But it was, for me, it was fantastic. It was definitely, um, you know, some of those movies are not easy hangs. <laughs> and so, mm -hmm. you know, when you're watching, rewatching Apocalypse Now for research for the third time at like five o'clock in the morning and your kids come in and there's like a, you know, an ox being slaughtered, you get the pause right. and you don't pause correctly. It's like, oh boy, this is a, it's heavy stuff. But I, yeah. I, 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 hopefully the show is a little more, um, not upbeat, but I think, I, I think people who enjoy movie history and also enjoy American history, um, might get a kick out of it. But the interviews, honestly, I, I would lucked out with interviews with that one. I, I feel so, um, grateful when people talk to me about that. So thank you for listening. I appreciate it. Okay. So at risk of asking an inside baseball question, but fuck it it's our podcast and i've got you for a few minutes um you have written books very good books now you've done these two narrative podcasts which could also have been books mm. um this book could have very well been a narrative podcast what for you determines at this point in your career as a writer 
how and where you tell the stories that you want to tell. It's very complimentary that you would believe that I have a choice. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's it too. It's like if you got an idea, it's like, well, the publisher doesn't quite work for it. And you're like, well, could this be a podcast then? But right. I do think um, I've only made two of these narrative podcasts. I am by no means an expert, but I do think um, – you know, the thing I love about them, especially for film history, is that you can play with audio so much. Um, and the 99 stuff for me, I would there I had, you know, I think I did like 130 interviews for that book. That's not a pod. That's just too much. Um, it's too many voices. It's too much sprawl. And it would be 326 episodes. Um, <laughs> but for the Vietnam show or Gene and Roger, there's just so much great audio you can use. And I'm still learning how to make these things. And I was very lucky that everyone at The Ringer, like, seriously were like a plus talents who helped me with stuff. Um, but for me, it's like, I love making those podcasts when instead of, you know, in a book, if you describe the plot of a movie, you got to pull back, give a sentence or two synopses. But the Vietnam show, it's like the movie, un- it's like you could just take a movie and play the, the trailer and vo- voiceover. And it's fantastic. Cause they used to do voiceovers and trailers and they tell you the right. whole plot in 20 seconds. So <laughs> right. I, I love that. I mean, I'm, but I am by no means like, I, you know, I am in no means in a position where I can kind of pick and choose where things go. But um, I do think, the the ones that have that audio element for me is makes me lean toward doing podcasts and some things also only need to be, you know, I'm talking to do, I'm talking about doing some podcasts now that are in the three, four five episode range. They don't all have to be like epics. And that's kind of fun too, to know that you can slim those down. Excellent. All right. Well, let's get to the matter at hand then, which is the, the, the year of 1999. Um, not to ask you to boil an entire, you know, pretty thick book into a thesis statement, but what do you think it was about 1999 that resulted in such an embarrassment of riches? Like, why were there so many great movies in this particular year? I mean, there are a couple of kind of like big reasons. I mean, one that is just absolutely just kind of what by coincidence is that you had basically three kind of generations of filmmakers mm. all at work at once. I mean, if you look at 99, you know, Stanley Kubrick makes his first movie since Full Metal Jackets. It's like 12, 13 years. George Lucas makes his first movie in a long time of he makes his little art film, the Phantom Menace. And then you have uh, this sort of mid-level of directors, like people like Oliver Stone or David Fincher or Soderbergh, who had been working steadily since the seventies, eighties and nineties. And then you have people making their first movies. Like, you know, 99 is it's Brad Bird. It's, it's Spike Jones. It's Sofia Coppola. They're all making right. their first films coming out that year. Um, and people like Wes Anderson, it's not his first movie, but Rushmore, which I know is technically late 98, but I put in the 99 book because that's when it was released. You know, you have these kind of three generations all colliding at once. But what really makes the year kind of cook is that they were, for the most part, allowed to do whatever they wanted to do. And that's because, you know, as I'm sure you all know and your listeners know, like by the end of the 90s, like things were not great for the big studios. Mm-hmm. It's almost as if they had done way too much IP and people were getting bored by movies, which is kind of a... <laughs> kind of hmm. again hmm. everyone kind of jokes about how bad sequels got in the 90s but there are so many i mean they made like the odd couple two in the late 90s right. like they were getting right. so bad <laughs> and i think the big studios were kind of like look we've had this indie revolution in the last couple of years no we don't know what to make anymore we're, i mean they there was still great stuff that came out of the studio system in the late 90s trust me i mean like out of sight like la confidential like amazing stuff but i think they were i think everyone's kind of like let's just i think everyone's like fuck it let's just throw these crazy people whatever money and big stars they needed and yeah they got big stars for these movies too like brad pitt in the late 90s could do whatever he wanted he decided to make fight club i mean tom cruise made eyes wide shut like these are big stars who are saying i'm gonna take at the at the apex of, of my career right now and at the apex of the movie industry in terms of money 
I'm going to go make something very weird and unusual because that's what I want to do. And the executives were like, okay, I guess, I guess what we got to do. There was like, and right. I think, I think, and I also think, you know, there's also, and we can talk about this a little bit later, but like, I do think, even though I don't want to get too woo woo and say that there was something in the air because of the new century and Y2K, like there was, it had been a very fast moving kind of daunting decade in some ways, as much as we remember the nineties as being the last good decade it's like it was also the technology was advanced was like outpacing humans basically and i think there was some anxiety there was a lot of actual fear about anxiety but also this kind of excitement of what was head and i think i think that way i think that kind of stuff it trickles down even the subconscious of filmmakers and of the audience and sometimes they're just on the same wavelength and i think that's what happened in 99 well that is man if we had scripted a a segue uh it wouldn't be better than that because we're gonna we're gonna pause the movies for just a moment i'm antsy to hear what what our our foremost expert in 99 (laughs) thinks were the great movies of that year the best of that year but until we do mike's gonna fill us in a little bit on those goings on in the outside world in this year of uh of anxiety and conclusion uh so here's mike with headlines Okay, this season we're going to start headlines with a quote. Let's see if you can if you can name the source. Okay. All right, this is a yes or no thing. We're not going to do hot or cold. Okay. This is a podcast. We're going to keep it moving. All Ready. right, here's the quote. Ready? Yep. We've all been raised on television to believe that one day we'd all be millionaires and movie gods and rock stars, but we won't. And we're slowly learning that fact, and we're very, very pissed off. <laughs> Yeah, that's uh, that's from Fight Club, if I'm not mistaken. I started with an easy one. I thought I'd I thought I'd start <laughs> with a gimme, right? We'll get more complicated yes. as they go. I, but I think yes. that that is actually that that quote is actually a really good sort of summation of the end mm-hmm. of the '90s, right? Twas an age of terror and fear, but there wasn't actually that much to be scared of yet. So people had to make a lot of stuff up. Primarily mm-hmm. Y2K. Right. Uh-huh. Uh, the problem was when computers are being designed in the 60s and 70s, data storage was really expensive the way it's very cheap now. Right. So one way they tried to save on storage was by using only two digits for the year. So everyone from the FAA to Fort Knox worried that their computers would interpret the new double zero year marker as 1900 instead of 2000. And then that's the part I was never clear on. What happens? Are they, were they going to self-destruct? I don't know what they were afraid of. I think they were mostly afraid of resetting mortgage rates back 100 years. Anyway, it was all anyone could talk about for huge chunks of 99, which was an appropriately vague sort of fear, right? We're going into a new century. We're going into a new millennium. Nobody knows what that means. In politics, 99 was the end of the Bill Clinton presidency, which is really only bad because of the guy that came after him. America spent the year listening to Al Gore try to give speeches and said, please don't make us do that ever again. In art news, Canadian artist Tamara Zeta Senawar Makan stirred up a bit of controversy by creating a project called Ultra Maxi Priest. She quilted maxi pads over a Catholic priest vestment, thus making a religious garment out of feminine products. Maybe the most 90s piece of art since Piss Christ. (laughs) The CBC did a nice piece on it if you'd like to see an interview with her. In travel news, Bertrand Picard and Brian Jones became the first two people to travel around the world in a hot air balloon, redefining travel for no one, actually. That was totally pointless. (laughs) Changed nothing. In crime news, Alexander Nemeth was arrested in Frankfurt, Germany, after he tried to extort $14 million from the Nestle company by poisoning the products once they were on the shelves. Sort of a Tylenol thing. You remember that with the Tylenol thing when they had to start putting plastic on the bottles? 
Right. His scheme involved representatives from the company sending him money by putting it in bags around the necks of his homing pigeons. So the cops were like, that's a great idea, and they put a GPS in one of them, and nobody's heard from Alexander Nimitz since. <laughs> Quite the mastermind. Yeah. In even worse crime news, the U.S. Coast Guard busted a boat carrying 4,300 kilos of cocaine on a ship bound for Houston and completely ruined my fucking birthday. Thanks, guys. Sorry, buddy. Couple of dumb assholes named Eric and Dylan shot up a high school in Colorado, so that sucked. But Colombian serial killer Luis Garavito was arrested, so that is very good. If your true crime podcast hasn't done an episode on Luis Garavito, they are fucking lazy and tell them to look outside of the borders of the United States because that guy was literally named the Beast. God gave us The Sopranos in 99, and Fatboy Slim's Praise You was a number one hit in the UK. You remember that? That feels super 99 right now, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Fatboy sure Slim. Yeah. Uh, Jack Ma founded Alibaba, and if you don't know what that is, again, look outside of the States every now and then. SpongeBob SquarePants began its incredible run. Glorb fam stand up. All I really watch <laughs> is Glorb on YouTube now. Glorb and Skibbity Toilet. If, if you don't know about those, you need to get younger kids. Uh, and Family Guy began redefining comedy for a new age. Oh, I only God. say that to annoy Jason. It worked. Marty Schottenheimer resigned from the Kansas City Chiefs. Not a huge news story, but a good excuse to say Marty Schottenheimer twice. <laughs> and finally, you know how people like to say the stabbing at Altamont was like the real end of the 60s? You know, that's mm -hmm. like an easy thing to put in your book. Michael right. Jordan retired from the NBA in 1999. And as far as I'm concerned, nothing could call the end of the 90s more than Michael Jordan retiring. That's news. Thank you so much, Mike. All right, Brian Rafter, are you ready to do a top five? Sure. All righty. So we're gonna. So we have a a chronological ordering for this week. So we're we're starting back in the spring of 1999 with a little uh, release from MTV Films. Brian, what is the number five movie on your top five list? I will say first, just to, just to, as a disclaimer, my top five for this year changes all the time. Mm -hmm. um, these are five movies that would have always been in my top 10 for the year, but these are the five movies I've been thinking about the most in the last few weeks or months for different reasons. So they're, they're movies that have been top of mind. But um, so the first one is Election, which I've been thinking about, obviously, for a lot of reasons. Welcome to Carver High. Today's lessons, mentoring. Did you cross the line with this girl? We're in love. Government. You want an apple? Or do you want an orange? That's democracy. I also like bananas. Exactly. Public speaking. Don't vote for me. Who cares? Don't vote at all. See more of life's lessons and election starring Matthew Broderick and Reese Witherspoon. Now playing in theaters everywhere. Soundtrack available on Sire Records but mostly because of the holdovers. Um, and it's still striking to me that this was a movie that has so clearly resonated with people and that Tracy Flick is still very much kind of a, um, a, a meme, a Twitter a gif you can throw up, throw on mm -hmm. once in a while. And when you get into how this movie was made, it's like this, this movie was just barely made at the theaters. I mean, this was right. supposed to be MTV really thought this, this was going to be like, Hey, we've got Ferris Bueller and we've got teenagers and we've got like a kind of a sexy plot. Like this is going to be some sort of really cool thing. And they realized when they tested it, it's like this movie's not for teenagers. It's also nope. kind of not for well-adjusted adults. Um, <laughs> but it was so striking because I, I think as much as I love Alexander Payne, I think The Holdovers is my favorite movie of his since 
um, election. And it's a lot of the same stuff. It's, it's about teachers. It's about, it's very, very, you know, subtly about class and class differences. Mm-hmm. Not, maybe actually sometimes not so subtly, but I also just think um, this, this movie, when I was working on the book, every time I would talk to some big filmmaker, whether Sofia Coppola or Fincher, I would always ask him at the end, like, you know, what do you think is your, what do you think is the best movie that year? And I can't speak for all of them, but like most of them said election. I think that was the one movie that a lot of those filmmakers look back on and they were like, yeah, that was kind of perfect. And I think it's, I think what's so perfect about it is that it just absolutely feels like nothing else to that year. It feels, um, it feels very kind of um, arch in a way that I think, maybe the culture was trying to move away from at the point. It, it just feels like a very mm. nice kind of capstone to the nineties. It's, it's to me, um, it, and to me, it's a movie that like, I really liked when I was 23, 24, when I saw it, but I didn't really get it till I was 40. And I started rewatching it and you're mm. like, Oh, I, I understand now I have a lot more <laughs> empathy, for, but I have a lot more empathy for Tracy Flick. And I have a lot more, um, I mean, I don't, I can't relate to Matthew Broderick's character who I think at one point is like scrubbing himself hunched down oh, in the bathtub. Oh, um, that's that's one of the great images of the yeah. year, as far as I'm concerned, yeah, is him absolutely. just scrubbing away in a motel bathroom. Like, don't leave out yes, that. That's right. Yes, it, yeah, yeah. Like, you that can't necessarily relate to his specific situation, but you can relate to the horror of being his age and being in that yeah. situation in a yeah. much different way than, <laughs> yeah. than your, like, the optimism of your 20s allows. Yeah, I think, and, and I think the movie also just, like, it just is a tone, in terms of tone, it's like, it is so dark at times and so um, kind of insightful, but it's also, it's got some of the three or four funniest lines um, of that whole year. Um, mm-hmm. And I, and again, like I, I love Alexander Payne, but after the holdovers, after I, after I walked out of the holdovers, I really wanted to rewatch election, which I've seen 10 times now because I worked on the book. So that one, you know, sometimes that's number one on my list. Sometimes it's number two or three, but it's, it's one of my absolute favorites. And it's, it's one of the ones that like I could very happily just catch 20 minutes on TV. Um, and I'm glad it's here. Cause again, Paramount almost had to bury it and it barely came out as it was. I mean, it got, I don't know anyone who saw election in the theater. I don't think, cause I was in college when it came out. It didn't play where I was in college. Did you see it? I did. I, it, it, okay. it, it made it to Wichita, Kansas, albeit <laughs> only for a week or two, but it, mm-hmm. it did. We did make yeah. it out. We did check it out. The theater was not, full (laughs) uh if memory serves like at all um but i remember i I will say this i think it it, a fair number of people that i knew at least saw it in that original theatrical run because we were in kansas and because that was you know he was almost like it was not quite a hometown guy but almost that 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 midwestern um you know point of view and the fact that it had been shot sort of nearby and i think one thing that we that that I feel like we were very aware of when we saw it that's not talked about as much now because it's this iconic Reese Witherspoon performance, because it's the sort of great book in Matthew Broderick performance. But all of the incredible sort of non-pro actors, the mm. the, the local talent that yeah. he I mean, he kind of I think always does that from what I've read, that he tries to 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 fill out the supporting roles with local actors as much as he can. But part of why this movie feels so genuine and lived in and authentic is because of the performance of the principal, you know, Um, it's because of some of the sort of secondary teen actors who are, who are filling out those roles. Like it just, it, it has that specific sort of regional authenticity, which I think is really special as well. And look at the kid in the holdovers. 
I mean, people can't yeah, get over yeah. the kid in the holdovers, like keeping it, holding up this movie with the other people who yeah. are in the movie that are like proper yeah, professionals. Yeah. He's yeah. obviously good at that, you know? Yeah. Yeah, he's fantastic at casting. I mean, I really think him and, and Soderbergh and Fincher in terms of like filling out supporting roles, they, it seems like they spend just as much time obsessing over that as they do over the lead roles. Um, yeah. But yeah, the whole cast of Election is great. You know, it's, like I said, it's it's wildly entertaining. It feels It feels very... 2024 in a lot of ways for for a 25 year old movie i don't think aside from the fact that the kids don't have cell phones they're probably wearing sketchers or something some other late 90s goofy shoe um it still feels very current yes agreed all right so moving on then uh past the spring and the 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 slight theatrical release we now move into the summer where uh we had a big summer blockbuster on your list um what is the fourth film on your list for 99 brian uh it's eyes wide shut i have seen one or two things in my life but never anything like this Eyes Wide Shut is Stanley Kubrick's haunting final masterpiece. I don't think you realize what kind of trouble you were in. Do you mind telling me what kind of charade ends with somebody turning up dead? Tom Cruise, Nicole Kidman. If you only knew. Eyes Wide Shut, rated R, starts Friday, July 16th. Which uh, is somehow in the last three or four years has become the biggest movie of all time. It's so, <laughs> this movie, like, I, I mean, I will say I, I, I did a book, like I actually wrote it like six, seven years ago. And I remember we were mapping it out, having a lot of conversations with my editor because we both really loved eyes wide shut and Kubrick. And we're like, is this a whole chapter? And I think right. we both just felt like, let's do it because it's, there's so much good stuff. But I don't think people forgotten how this movie was, you know, I was working in entertainment weekly in 1999. I was an intern. And every 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 couple of days, they would all the Time Inc. magazines would drop off their new issue. We get that we get to see it first. And there's this famous cover of Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise on the cover of Time, basically naked, hugging each other. And I remember at Entertainment Weekly, everyone's like, "Oh fuck, we did not get this story. Like this was the biggest story." And I bought a ticket. I was living in New Jersey. I bought a ticket to go see it on a, the Sunday opening weekend in this huge theater in Times Square. Uh, I think it's closed now. I think it was the Astor, maybe, but. And I was like, I took a bus in. I'm like, oh my God, I got to see Eyes Wide Shut. This is like, this is absolutely the event of my lifetime. And it was like me and six other people. Right. It's like three of which I think were there just because they're perverts. Not all think they were Kubrick right. fans. I mean, <laughs> right. the, the diagram is pretty close. But um, I, I love how this movie is. I mean, out in LA, they show this year round. It's like a it's, it's Christmas movie now. But yep. I think people will be surprised to learn how coolly it was kind of received. Like I, I liked it. I did not get it. This is another movie that like, you're not really going to get until you're at a certain point in your life. Um, but I've just been rewatching a lot of Kubrick, um, partly because of the Vietnam show, but also just in general, the kind of like obsessing over him. I just read this fantastic book on the making of 2001, a space odyssey that came out five years ago. Um, and I kind of wanted to rewatch eyes wide shut, which was, which is a movie that when I first saw in the theater, I don't think I ever thought I'd watch it again, but I, I don't know. Like how did, Jason, do you know when this became like tw film Twitter's favorite movie? Like, I do feel like it's the last three or four years, but I'm not sure what oh, it is. Whether, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't I, know what sparked. Them. I mean, it's a great movie, but I think there's just a sort of natural um, lifespan that it takes for a Kubrick movie to to lock in. Um, yeah, you know, because I remember that as well. Like, you know, uh, I, I, in fact, remember the weekend after this movie came out, one of my coworkers, 
who was not a film goer, um, uh, generally, uh, I remember having to walk out of a room because they hated this movie so much. They said that they were glad that the guy who made it is dead. So he can't make any more movies. (laughs) All right. I don't think I had heard a, a, a response that, that vehement before or since. Yeah, that's harsh. So that was, uh, you know, at one end of the spectrum, but, but you're right that it was, you know, it was, it was not a huge commercial success. It was not a huge critical success. Um, yeah. and on, and one of the things I really liked about, um, uh, Karina Longworth's episodes on it in, in her last miniseries was, uh, digging into that aspect. Like she has this incredible clip of like Janet Maslin having to like defend herself for giving it a good review on Charlie mm-hmm. Rose, I think, or something. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's, I, I think sometimes he was just working at a level where, the the sort of general public and even the the sort of intelligentsia weren't sure quite what he was doing, and there's a lot about this movie that's really tricky, the yeah. the sort of the the dreamlike nature of it, um the stilted eroticism of it, um and it's also a case where I think that initial response is really hard to separate from the, the several years of breathless hype leading up to the release, you know, that, that, that had really led a lot of people to think that they, I mean, you joke about the perverts that you were in times square, um, (laughs) that there was, there was a, a sense that not only that he was making an erotic thriller, but that he was making some sort of like boundary breaking erotic thriller, that this was going to be some sort of like, you know, the sexiest movie ever made. And it is very pointedly like, the the most blue balls movie ever made. And I think maybe people just were not quite ready for that when it came out. Yeah. I think, I think everything's, I think that, I think there's a little bit of like the Illuminati culture is definitely latched on this movie in a way. Yes. But I think also it's like, I really want to, I have not been able to see any of these screenings in LA and I really want to go because I want to see how it plays as almost a comedy. Cause like, yeah, I remember at a certain point watching it being like, this is so fucking fun. I mean, like Tom Cruise's character, like his wife mentions having an erotic dream and he like walks around the city pounding his fist together. He's so angry. He's like a loony <laughs> character. He's like Daffy Duck or something. He's so, it's the most extreme reaction. And I think the thing is people thought it was just bizarre at the time. And now it's like, yeah, this is like men are insane. <laughs> we yes. all know this now. Like, Yes, well, like you know, too, it's it's very much a why are men movie. It's you know, men, yeah. men will men will stomp around to dream like fake New York City all night instead of going to therapy. Okay. Like yeah, there's exactly, a lot. Yeah. Of, it's very memeable to contemporary films from this year where men would just need to go to therapy. Yeah. Yes, I think there's a sort of there's a slightly lower brow sort of uh, explanation of the change too, which is a lot based around Tom Cruise and sort of who he was then, who he is now. He's been through a couple of divorces. He did Mm -hmm. that whole thing on the couch at Oprah's place. Like, you know, he's sort of, he's really become identified with Scientology in a way that like he tried to sort of defend for a while, but now he's just like, fuck you, go see Mission Impossible. Like, just let me be a movie star. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like the sort of, he like judging him, thinking about him and what he meant and his choices meant for the movie industry and moviegoers and stuff like that at that time was just a much bigger deal than it is now. I think that like, you know, this sort of what we have to feel and have to think and if we have to be smart about Tom Cruise is sort of not as bad. Also, Kubrick's been dead long enough now that he's not challenging anybody anymore. You know, he's sort of like you can it's you know, it's we sort of people once they're dead. Right. Like then we can put them on coins 
then like, you know, Martin Luther King becomes a couple of quotes instead of like, you know, a real activist who might block your, your traffic, you know, that kind of thing. Right. And for all of those, like just dumb, very dumb reasons, just very small ball, dumb reasons. I think like, it's a little bit easier to like, to look at it all now and not feel so pressured, you know? Yeah. Plus, people love masks, and uh, they're very cool masks in the movie. Yeah. I hadn't thought of the Illuminati thing, but I think that's like I think that's a guy. I think that's a lot. There's a lot of that. There. I mean, I mean, he's got it, it's yeah. become a more popular movie since Jeffrey Epstein, quote unquote, killed himself. That's all. <laughs> that's part of it. I I don't think it's a coincidence. No, no. Our, but I think also the, the cruise thing is I just just to go back to the cruise thing. It's like if you're a 26, 27 year old movie fan, you only know Tom Cruise as Mission Impossible. So this mm-hmm. is like. When I was growing up, I only knew Clint Eastwood from like Westerns or Dirty Harry. And then you watch some of the more interesting, more some of the character stuff he does. You're like, who was this guy before he became this guy? You know, and I think I think for people who don't know much about Cruz, except that he likes to jump off trains and whatever he's doing in the next Mission Impossible. It's like this is he's genuinely kind of great in this. And it's yeah. kind of for a guy who plays now only this macho character, watching him be completely self-emasculating is yeah. that's why I think part of it plays it plays kind of like a comedy. Yeah, I agree. All right. Well, the uh, the the next film on your list was also a big summer release. Uh, perhaps the the biggest sleeper hit of the summer. What is the number three movie on your list, Brian? Uh, I put one of the most apparently most controversial movies of the year, which is the Blair Witch Project. <laughs> In October of 1994, three student filmmakers arrived in Burkittsville, Maryland to interview locals about the legend of the Blair Witch. All I'm saying is that you got us lost. Uh, no, I know we're not lost. Oh, you knew that yesterday, too, and you knew that twice. Look, go more or less this way. One year later, their footage was found, but the three were never seen again. I ain't gonna die, Paul. One thing that's funny is when I was when I, I'm not here just to plug a five-year-old book, but I did notice when I was doing interviews with all these filmmakers and actors, almost all the actors and filmmakers who were over 40 around, mm-hmm. who were so in the, or were 40 or up on the older head, older edge, hated the Blair Witch Project. Of course. Everyone who was kind of closer to my age, like in their 20s or early 30s when it came out, were like, that movie scared the shit out of me. I mean, this yep. really was kind of a divisive movie. And one thing that's so fascinating about the Blair Witch Project is that it is how, I don't think people realize like, when we talk about the monoculture now, it's like this movie was on the cover of Time and Newsweek, which means yeah. nothing now. But like this was absolutely like you had to go see it like right now. It was not the kind of thing you could wait till you could not wait till home video. People were talking about this movie for months and months before it came out. Um, and I I kind of lucked out that I got to see it at kind of an early screening. And I still remember walking around Midtown afterward and I was so rattled by it. And I, and I mm-hmm. think one reason it's been on my mind lately is because – I I'm really trying to find a horror movie that will do that to me again. I think I've horror I've kind of fallen out on. Like I just I I once in a while a movie a new horror movie will kind of grab me, but for the most part like I'm not I I I don't think I've been as scared as I really was at the end of Blair Witch. And again, some people watching at the time thought it was ridiculous. Some people might watch it now and think, "Why are you scared of this?" But there was something so visceral about seeing it. Um and I I don't know. I I I think it's a remarkably good movie. I think the actors were fantastic and i don't think they ever got their credit so um i feel like they deserve a lot of i think they deserve a lot of like praise for what they did in that movie yeah well i mean i it is also one of those things where you know with with a lot of and we talk about this a lot on the show when a movie is is sort of a a famous groundbreaker so much of what it 
did becomes part of the cinematic vernacular that if you're going back and watching it now for the first time, you may not understand how groundbreaking that was because it's just become part of the DNA of how movies are made. But like, first of all, you know, found footage, it was, it was not the first found footage movie, but it was certainly the first found footage horror movie to have this kind of success. Yeah. But, but also, you know, it's hard to explain the impact of having a movie that was this savvily marketed that had this kind of a backstory built uh that had a website that was part of the backstory which yeah. became so de rigueur like but so part of just the playbook for indie filmmaking uh and and sort of all of the very clever things that they did with those aspects of it I still remember loving the like the sci-fi channel which was very new then uh oh. ran this like hour long special uh, oh yes the, yeah the the week before it came out it was like the secrets of the Blair Witch or something which was yeah. which was in the style of the old in search of TV shows yes. which yeah. like that like I went into the movie ready to be scared because those in search of shows were like the first thing that scared the shit out of me as like a six-year-old watching television and stumbling upon like eerie music and mysterious yeah. blurry photos and things like that like the the details with which they sort of built the mythology of this um, were so clever and were such a huge part of what you brought into the movie if you were a sort of media savvy person, which yeah. I was and you were and, and that sort of thing. And it was collaborative too. I mean, I think, you know, I mentioned that all five of these movies are movies that have been in my mind a lot recently. And I think mm -hmm. I was really struck last year by both the kind of the Megan dance on TikTok taking off and then obviously Barbenheimer where it's like, it's true, the Blair Witch team was very smart. They seeded all the stuff on the internet, but you can... You can't, you know, you can do that for any movie. You can eventually hire some people to make up a backstory, make some cool flash animation, whatever it was in 1999. What happened was that people, people just jumped in and took, they kind of made this their own movie. They kind of added to the myth. They started message boards. I mean, I think the message boards that people were starting and commenting on were probably more effective than the trailer for this movie because people were just oh, like, definitely. is it real? Is it not? I've heard about this. I know, no, my cousin knows someone who died doing this. You know what I mean? They became right. this kind of word of mouth thing that whether or not it was a, whether or not we were all kind of trying to convince ourselves that we might think it might really be a snuff film or whether we just kind of wanted to believe that to make it more fun. Um, the fans and the audience kind of turned this into something that no one could have imagined it. And it took, and you can't force this to happen. You can't like, you cannot reverse engineer this and no one else really did that again for many years. Uh, it took a long time before that kind of Hollywood figured out a way to kind of do that on their own. I agree. And then the other thing that's really hard to overstate or the, is the power of the aesthetics of this thing, that this was like yeah. one of the first sort of wide release movies that I remember seeing as someone who was a filmmaker at the time. So was paying attention to this stuff that that used digital video that like that yeah. looked that looked like something that that you could have shot at home. And the terror of it, the sort of the the authenticity of it was so rooted in how well they use those aesthetics. Yeah. Um, again, shooting on video became very common and, and sort of the handheld, you know, shaky cam video became such a sort of lazy shorthand for a, a, a sort of grounded authenticity, et cetera, et cetera. But seeing this on like the huge screen at the Warren Theater, where mm. I had, was seeing all of these other, you know, where I saw Star Wars two months earlier, <laughs> like really legitimized video filmmaking in a way that that felt huge at the time. Yeah. It's it's insanely well made. The editing is great. The filmmaking is great. Yeah, I, I really feel like weirdly for a movie that got on the cover of Time and Newsweek and made 
like $170 million or whatever it was. I feel like it's never quite gotten the respect it deserves. Um, I'm hoping they re-release it this summer because my older daughter, probably old enough to see it. And I'm curious if I just took her, whether she would think it was real or not. (laughs) I'd like to see if someone who does not, who has not been following the Blair Witch online for many years, what they would make of this movie now. But I, I, I have a lot of respect for this movie and I have a lot of genuine affection for it. I agree. All right. So then moving out of the summer and into the fall, Brian Raftery, what is your number four movie for 1999? Uh, Well, when I was doing the Vietnam podcast, I was thinking a lot about war movies and about the fact that with the exception of Vietnam movies, I didn't watch a lot of war movies growing up. Like I had a lot of friends whose dads were always watching World War II movies. My dad was often watching World War II documentaries. So I watched a lot Mm -hmm. of those. Sure. Um, And I was trying to think of the first kind of war movie that kind of really hit me in a way that kind of spoke to me and it was three kings which um it's a david o russell movie from 1999 what do you see here bonkers sir what's inside millions at the end of the gulf war where's the gold they were looking to turn a profit we're dying and you're stealing gold now they can't turn back we can help these people then we'll be on our way George Clooney, Mark Wahlberg, Ice Cube. You go now, please. I don't think so. Three Kings, rated R, starts Friday, October 1st. I kind of feel like it's it gets lost sometimes in the conversation of a lot of these movies. Um, but it's it's George Clooney, it's Mark Wahl. I think it's Mark Wahlberg's second best performance aside from Boogie Nights. Um, but it's you know it's it's set in the early 90s after the Iraq War, that the first Iraq War, and it's it's one of those movies that tone wise, it's very biting. It's got a lot on its mind, but it does feel like, you know, first and foremost, the emphasis is always on story, story, story. It's like, it's, you know, David O. Russell has mentioned a million times, like treasure of Sierra Madre. That's kind of what the obvious comparison is, but it does, it does feel like one of those classic, like great entertainments movies of the fifties or sixties studio system, but also with a very pointed message about not a message. Cause I don't believe it has a message. I think it's just trying to illustrate the effects of Bush, the Bush policy, um, the older, the, 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 Bush the original Bush, yeah. the original Bush It's an one, incredibly yeah. effective, uh, like, encapsulation of a conversation that we have forgotten ever happened because the next yeah. year, or, you know, two years later, his kid went and started a whole new thing, right? So, yeah. like, we've yeah. forgotten that conversation. But that was a big part of the 90s was talking about, you know, and like the people who were like, no, we could have made real change there. You know, this is sort of what became the Christopher Hitchens position later, so on and so forth. Like I, I thought Jason loved this movie. Like he loved this movie 10 minutes into it. The first time he went to it, when it came out, like Bailey has been championing this movie. So for so long in my ear that I just always felt like (laughs) I had seen it, but I threw it on just as like a reminder watch. Uh, and it turns out what I had seen was sort of the middle section where Wahlberg is getting interrogated. But, like, I hadn't mm. seen the, the some major parts of the movie. And the end of the movie really, like, it fits with story. It's all there. If you don't know anything about it except these characters and their experience, you're enjoying the movie, right? But what was hitting me as I'm thinking about this year and putting together right. the news segment... Is right. just how, what an incredible encapsulation of that conversation that was. Like, we could help them. They're right there. Mm. Yeah. You know, and, yeah. and like, you know, get yeah. the money. Like, put the gold in the, you know what I mean? Like, you're getting court-martialed yeah. for trying to do something that is in all of our press releases. Like, 
I was really, really impressed with just how smart the end of the movie was without needing to be or feel smart. Well, I think I think also it's kind of this movie also kind of encapsulates what was so interesting about Hollywood in the late 90s. Going back to your original question, which is that this, you know, this is David O. Russell. He's mostly done indies at this point. And this is a Warner Brothers movie. And it's not just it's not only a Warner Brothers movie. It's it's starring the guy who was Warner Brothers big asset because yeah you know er was a warner brothers produced tv show and so to get like whatever it was 60 70 million dollars to take a huge star like george clooney put him in a movie with a largely untested in terms of like big budget movie going uh with david o russell like it's a remarkable risk and i can't even imagine what people thought when they thought they were going to see like a fun george clooney caper which it is but it also has a scene where a you see a slow mo you know you there's this time lapse sort of thing about a, how a bullet goes through a body in close up and like basically like you're looking at someone's lungs get destroyed on a big screen it's like that movie is really kind of the best of what hollywood can do big studio hollywood and what indie hollywood can kind of do when they're allowed to kind of uh, steal from each other and not kill each other in the process there's like a whole scene where like nine Iraqis get shot and die. One American gets shot and is like, oh, that hurt. And like gets back up because he's got the vest on. I mean, there are yeah. so many little yeah. things like that that have been part of this conversation that are not a part of the conversation of the movie are just present in it. Yeah. I, and I also picked it because I don't have being John Malkovich on my list, which I absolutely love. But so I figured I could cheat. And this is this is my other Spike Jones movie from this year because he's so great <laughs> in it. And he is not act enough. When he popped up in Babylon, I was like, oh, he kind of looks like his Three Kings character again, like kind of scrawny and short hair. Um, he's he's very funny and very moving in this. Uh, I mean, he's he's one of his generation's great actors who's been in like three things. Yes, <laughs> agreed. This movie every 15, 20 years or so, and he's great in it. Yes. And, and before we move on, I do also have to, we've mentioned it on the show before, but I have to shout out the, the greatest DVD bonus feature ever, which is <laughs> on the three Kings disc. Um, uh, and what's it's, it's an intimate look at the acting process with ice cube, um, oh, yeah. directed by Spike Jones. Uh, it's about two and a half minutes long. Go find it on YouTube or I'll, I'll, I'll embed it. I in think the show that's notes. why I assumed I'd seen the movie. Cause I've seen that ice cube behind the scenes thing yeah. so many times that I must've seen. <laughs> In the actual movie right all right so in conclusion uh taking us into november we have one more uh really fantastic film brian what is the final movie on your top five for 1999 i mean it's it's the 90s michael mann movie that everyone obsesses all the film bros love it they oh, of course all the time. Of about course. two guys going at it they're so good at their jobs they're circling each other um <laughs> It's The Insider, which I love. It's still the second best movie about journalism ever. What does this guy have to say that threatens these people? Well, it isn't cigarettes are bad for you. He's only the key witness in the biggest health reform issue in U.S. history. He met an insider who was ready to reveal what no one else could tell. I was told, don't talk. Al Pacino. The more truth he tells, the worse it gets. Russell Crowe. I told the truth. It's not the point whether you tell the truth or not. The Insider. A Michael Mann film, rated R, starts Friday, November 5th. It's funny, I, and I've been thinking about this only because Michael Mann's doing retrospective, and I went to go see him speak about a couple of movies, and um, I, this movie is so much, is so, so much cooler and more fun than I think people gave it credit for at the time. Oh, yeah. It was, a, it was also, I mean, this movie was very heavily publicized. It was heavily scrutinized. You know, it's about 60 minutes. It's about this, it's about the tobacco industry, um, you know, 
Mike Wallace was already in the press complaining about this and, and the way he was depicted in this movie before I think he even saw it. Um, so it had this kind of like real long kind of mythos before it came out. And then you watch it and it's, it was not heat. It was not a movie where like there's going to be these eruptions of violence or this kind of every single minute is some sort of testosterone laden kind of exchange, but man, it's great. And there's just, there's just scenes of Pacino talking to Russell Crowe or, Christopher Plummer talking to his staffers. And it's just, I, I love this movie. I feel, I really think that like, you know, the, people are very heavily back into Michael Mann now, which is great. I think this is still the movie that gets overlooked in terms of his, of his, uh, his entire filmography. No, I, I definitely agree. Yeah. And I mean, you know, and it, it did feel like him, you know, taking a chance and doing something that was a little, a little, you know, Heat is sort of the culmination of everything that he's done up to that point, um, with the exception of Last of the Mohicans. Like he does these outlier movies every once in a while, mm. and I think, and I that's always sort of how I've thought of this one. Um, it it has so much to say about journalism. It has so much to say about corporate America. Mm. Um, it has what is still probably my favorite Russell Crowe performance, partially yeah, because I think it's it absolutely yeah. It's so unlike anything else he's ever done. It's so him. I admire any time an actor is willing to sort of jettison the thing that makes them most uh, charismatic. Yeah. You know, like like he's he's so introverted in this, and is usually so sort of muscular and 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 uh, gregarious. And to see him play a guy who's so far inside himself is really fascinating. Um, I think it's Pacino doing like the best version of the sort of Pacino yeah. guy of the nineties. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, I don't want him to tone down what it, you know, I, I think he's a little over the top in heat and I think that's on oh, purpose. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I don't know. It's just, and, and, and just a murderer's row of great character actors. Like every, you want to talk about a well-cast movie, like fucking Bruce McGill is so great in this. Oh, Christopher is great. Yeah. Christopher Plummer's incredible and yeah. like everybody in there, especially these guys who just come in for like a scene or two and just fucking crack the bat. Like yeah. it's, it's just really very good. I think part of why it gets overlooked a bit is because, and I'm going to try not to wax rhapsodic here for too long, but there was, you know, throughout the late eighties and the nineties, Disney had this wonderful division called touchstone pictures right. where they made movies for grownups. Like it was specifically, it's, st it was started to make R rated movies or hard PGs or PG 13s. And they kind of got out of that business at some point in the last like 10 or 15 years, there hasn't been a touchstone release in several years. Yeah. Um, but there are, there are some incredible movies in, in that catalog and there's really nowhere for that, they, that they stream them very often. The accessibility for them is not great. They put some of the more family friendly ones on Disney plus, um, and that's like kind of it. Yeah. So, it, it's a kind of, it, you know, it, it occasionally will pop up on Hulu or prime. It's a movie you sort of have to track down, but it is well, well worth the effort. I think. Yeah. Um, and the fact it, that Disney made this giant anti-corporate movie. Yes! is Remarkable to me. It's so goofy. Welcome to yeah. the nineties baby. When Sony was putting out rage against the machine. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, right. Like that's part of like, they were selling us back this sort of anti-corporate thing in a way that like, it's incredible now how, popular and like well understood those ideas were 
Yeah, and I think, you know, a movie like The Insider or Three Kings or a band like Rage Against Machine, they only get a kind of major label or a big studio backing if someone there really genuinely loves them and can champion them from within. And I think that's, you know, that to me is what I think is kind of missing from the big studios now, where it's like sometimes I look at the lineup or look at the trailers and I'm like, do any of these executives actually like movies? I mean, are they right. are they just as frustrated as we are having to make this kind of some of these IP movies, or do they genuinely think this is going to be great? And um, you know, whatever you know, whatever whoever along the way got these movies made, like whether it was Joe Roth or like Lorenzo de Bonaventura, like these these were not like you know these were studio executives who had to make money and make a profit and make their bosses happy, but I think they also wanted to make movies that they wanted to see or wanted to see get made, and I do think. Uh, I'm not going to go on the record praising studio executives, especially after what they just put the writers through at LA. But they did at least a lot of them had some really good taste and fought for fought for these movies to get made. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well said, well said. All right. Well, Brian, thank you so much for that excellent top five. Um, let's find out now a little bit about the big doings of the movie business in the year 1999. Here's Mike with the Hollywood freaks from the Hollywood scene. American Beauty has not aged as well as many of the other films we've talked about on this episode, but it was the big winner at the Oscars for 99, taking home trophies for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Screenplay, and Best Actor for the also-hasn't-aged-well Kevin Spacey. (laughs) The other, and that is not a comment about Crow's Feet. The other Oscar-winning performances were Hilary Swank for Boys Don't Cry, Michael Caine for The Cider House Rules, and Angelina Jolie for Girl Interrupted. Brian, where do you uh, land on American Beauty here in the year 2024? Uh, You know, I have a very weird relationship with that movie because when it came out, I I, I went to an early screening and I laughed a lot. I thought it was really phony baloney. I am not a fan of... Gee, the suburbs are dark, aren't they? Kind of stuff. And I was so I that whole winter, I was just the the killjoy at every party who was like, yeah, I didn't like that movie. People were shocked. Um, and so I was kind of dreading revisiting it. I think American Beauty is if you take away all the problematic stuff from behind the scenes, I understand why it hit at that particular moment. Um, I do think it's an extraordinarily good looking movie. Um, like I think Conrad Hall did it and it looks looks great. Um, but I, you know. I, it's, I mean, how do you divorce yourself from the spacey of it all? But um, there's stuff in there that I can, I understand more and I can see why it resonated. I just was, I had a very MST3K-ish reaction to American Beauty. So the fact that the rest of the culture has caught up to me, finally, yes, yes. improved me right. Um, but, you know, I gotta be honest, I interviewed Alan Ball for the book and Thora Birch and they were lovely and very thoughtful. And I think this movie was... This movie made DreamWorks. I mean, it's like it, it was and it was also the subject of an incredibly bitter Oscar campaign uh, between Miramax and DreamWorks and Harvey Weinstein. And back when he was a, back when he was an asshole just for his publicly known business dealings. So, yeah, <laughs> but uh, it's not a movie I'm going to revisit anytime soon. And I and I I would love to see what like a 24, 25 year old film fan thinks of it now, because they must just think that we were all just complete psychopaths to embrace <laughs> that movie in the 90s. Well, you're of the right age. If you ever have to watch it again, watch it through the lens of the spacey character, like an interpretation of the spacey character as Bill Clinton and the neighbor as like sort of retired General Norman Schwarzkopf. <laughs> and then it's like, it's quite a fucking thought process on the night, thought pro- project it on is, the and 90s. It's, and it's so, like, it's so navel-gazy. Like the late 90s, it's like, again, pre-9-11, it's like, 
what what do what do middle aged married men what's troubling them? Well, it's like let's really double down and like on their problems, um, yeah. which you know no one would give a shit about now. With any why are white men sad? sad. Yeah. Um. Yeah. <laughs> Most of the other Oscar forerunners also gave their best picture awards to American Beauty, but credit where due, right? The New York Film Critics Circle's best film of 99 was Topsy Turvy. Yeah. All right, then. Yeah. 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 That's good. Good for them. I love All that. Right. I love them. It's so entertaining. What a great yeah. movie. Yeah. And the Los Angeles Film Critics Association gave their prize to The Insider. Yay. Well earned. This, year, this year's box office champ was Star Wars Episode One: Phantom Menace, which we knew at the time was a bag of shit. That one was unsurprising. The surprise commercial smash of the year was number two, The Sixth Sense, with $276 million domestic and $672 million worldwide. No wonder we still have to watch his movies. The other big hits of the year included Toy Story 2, The Matrix, Tarzan, Big Daddy, and The Mummy. One of the loudest flops of the year was Wild Wild West, which reteamed Men in Black star director combo of Will Smith and Barry Sonnenfeld. That film's failure put the kibosh on plans for the duo to reunite for Muhammad Ali biopic. Sony would keep that project in development. Good decision. And begin seeking out a new director. Also Aha. good decision. Yes. 1999 marked the debut of TiVo, the personal digital video recorder that could learn viewing habits. Remember TiVo? Yeah. Everybody loved TiVo. Uh, it was also the first chance to skip commercials without pushing a button, right? Like that, that. was a big deal. Yep. I'm going to I'm going to be honest with you. I didn't I never imagined a universe in which we would be able to to skip commercials. I was not that optimistic or like forward <laughs> thinking of a person in the 90s. So that Yeah, but now a- we can't do it anymore. We can't do it because <laughs> Amazon Prime's adding commercials. Yep. You got to pay extra to get rid of it. Yeah. You can yeah. do a little bit of search on uh, on the DuckDuckGo. You'll figure out a way. <laughs> <clears throat> and finally on February 20th, Gene Siskel died from a brain tumor gone too soon at 53. RIP to a real one. And uh, again, we we've given a lot. We've talked quite a bit about uh, do we get to win this time? But uh, uh, Gina Roger, also a fine, fine narrative podcast. Oh, thank you. That was a lot of fun. Um, All right, Brian Rafter, are you ready to do a lightning round? Sure. All right. You know how it goes. We're going to put five minutes on the clock. Uh, I will throw you a title. Anything you'd like to say, say. If not, just pass. And here we go. American movie. Oh, I love American movie. Um, one of the best documentaries of the nineties. And I think what makes that movie so great, you know, it's about this very hard, hardworking kind of struggling horror movie in development is that late nineties documentaries, when you watch them or whether it's something like crumb or American movie pre survivor, pre big brother in America, like people just were still, I think there's nowadays everyone is so used to having a camera on them. And even the most like, well-intentioned mm-hmm. non-fiction projects there's always a little bit of performance to it i feel like when you watch american movie there is no performance the guys you're watching make this movie are 100 barely barely recognize the cameras are there they are who they are and i would recommend it the one of the, a great double feature would be american movie with one of my other favorite 90s movies ed wood which i think are both two perfect movies about how ah, hard it is to make a movie and how how <laughs> triumphant you should feel when you finish one want to be a go. filmmaker you got to make films baby <laughs> <laughs> 1999 saw the U.S. release of Audition. Oh my God, I've I saw it. I'm trying to forget that movie still. I I can recognize <laughs> its art, but man, yeah, not. <laughs> I don't know why. I don't know why I rented it on a random Wednesday, but it was not. It was not. 
not the best time for me to watch that movie in whatever 2000, whenever I saw it. Um, Harold Ramis's Analyze This. I don't remember ever seeing it. I think I know I did. I know I rented it. But I think, you know, again, it's like it's still remarkable that that came out the same time as The Sopranos. I think I rented it from a video store in New Jersey and it was a bootleg copy, I realized. So there was <laughs> a bootleg mom and pop shops and uh, it was definitely an unauthorized screener they were renting to people. God I have no memory him. of it. Yeah. American Pie. Um, you know, it, as far as movies from 1999 that are problematic with the word American in it, like it's, <laughs> it's second to American Beauty. Um I loved writing about it in the book. I think it's very, I think, you know, one thing about that year is that it was really a peak for teen movies and trying to do something different with teen movies while also trying to go back to what made them fun in the eighties. Um, there's a lot of fun stuff in it. I don't know if, you know, the scene where they kind of accidentally sneak a web camera or not accidentally, but they plan a web camera in a girl's room is a uh, beyond skeevy. Um, but I mean, look, there's some fun stuff in it. And look, it gave Eugene Levy a whole franchise that he could, milk for many years and makes i don't even know how many direct dvd sequels of that so god bless him for keeping him employed throughout the early aughts as long as we're talking about teen movies how about dick oh dick is great you know i feel bad because i actually i interviewed i think you said andrew fleming is he the director um and i had to and i interviewed the screenwriter too and it was one of those movies i had to kind of cut out of the book but i think you know dick is very fun i've actually been thinking about rewatching it just because i was so knee-deep in nixon stuff um while doing the Vietnam show and because it, but I, it's very charming. You really see Kirsten Dunst as a comedic performer, uh, which I think she doesn't get to do as much anymore, but that was a great era for her. Like a lot of great roles that she had three huge movies that year. So nine, nine is kind of like the, the, the year Kirsten Dunst became like the Kirsten Dunst. We know. Speaking of which drop dead gorgeous. Uh, a movie that I left out of the book and that I have been told I was very stupid for doing so. And I actually regret because <laughs> when I interviewed Kirsten Dunst for the book, she was she got on the phone. The first thing she said was, we're not going to talk about Drop Dead Gorgeous. Like as a joke, like she was talking about virgin suicides and and Dick. Um, and I think um, there's a couple of movies from that year, teen movies that I just either I couldn't fit or I didn't realize how how much resonance they had with certain audiences. Because that is a huge movie. Um, and I think maybe it's one of those instances where like kind of as like a straight white guy didn't quite realize how the, how many communities kind of love that film. And a couple others from that year as well. Never Been Kissed. That's very fun. John C. Riley. Like I love John C. Riley doing a big studio comedy supporting turn is great. Um, Drew Barrymore is, is, I was, you know, she didn't have the best 2023, uh, but I still think she is remarkably charming. And I think that movie makes a very good use of everything she was so good at in those kind of films. It's and look, it's another great journalism movie from that year. It's not the insider, but no. you know, it's, 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 it's got some newsroom scenes, you know, it's got some Does newsroom indeed. dressing down scene. Cruel intentions. I love cruel intentions. I wrote about that, another teen movie from that year. Um, God, it's that movie is, I wonder what it's like to watch that even five years now. I haven't watched it since nine, since I worked on the book and I bet it's even more fucked up than I remember now. I mean, it's probably, but it's also like it, it, it. There's something about that movie that, that I think there just was so few kind of like teen movies that got even kind of like actually sexy, sexy. Like, like American Pie is like a sex movie, was not really super sexy. But like Cruel Intentions was like I can see why it's kind of lingered for many years because it does feel like it feels a little risky. Like like these actors are really young and this is aimed at like 15 year old kids. Um, but I, I I think it's very funny and very sharp and. Um, uh, Ryan Felipe has a very nice house because I interviewed him there for the book and he was a very delightful guy. 10 things I hate about you. 
Very fun. It's, again, another one from that year. The God, I forgot how many there really were in 99. I wrote that whole chapter about it. Um, I mean, I think it's great. I mean, Heath Ledger, again, another guy who like did not get to do as much comedy stuff as maybe he could have. Like he's because he's kind of the straight man, but he's very charming in that. It's also what it's like. That's one of the year's great like breakout, breakout performances where it's like, oh, this is this guy. We're going to be seeing him for the next several years. And finally, Kevin Smith's Dogma. Oh, my God. I remember working at Entertainment Weekly. This movie was covered so much. The controversy. Yeah. About it. Um, it may be where things went off the rails for me and and Kevin Smith. Um, I really respect what he's trying to do. I love that at the peak. This is like him at the peak of his powers, getting like this into like Linda Fiorentino and Chris Rock and Alan Rickman. Um, I think the problem is like, honestly, I, I've rewatched it. I, I have a DVD of it still from doing book research. I know it's like kind of out of print and hard to find. Like, it's also just like visually like a, just an incredibly ugly movie. And I think it's, it's, I think he needed a few more years as a filmmaker to really kind of make that movie the way he wanted to. Cause it, it's, it's a lot of people talking and sitting and, and at a certain point it, it gets a little tiring, but I know I the, the controversy around it is, is fascinating. All right. And that wraps up our lightning round. Nicely done, Brian. Thank um, you. Where can people follow you on social media? Where can they read your work? Where can they listen to you, et cetera? Uh, well, do we get to win this time? And Gene and Roger are on, they were made by Spotify and the ringer, but you can get them on Apple, wherever you, wherever you get your podcasts, as the kids say, I guess I have a Twitter account, but I'm not sure. I don't think I've done anything with it aside from stare at misinformation and Cheech and Chong ice cream ads, which is all <laughs> I, I get served up now. There was like two weeks where it was just like every third post was just like, it's legal. Our ice cream, whatever it is. I don't know what the hell it is. I'm like, I don't care about Cheech and Chong. Like, I don't need, I live in California. You don't have to advertise weed to people who live in California. This is the dumbest targeted advertising ever. Um, but I'm mostly, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of laying low off social media I'm uh, at this point. But, um, but yeah, those two podcasts are the most recent things. And I have a couple of things I'm hopefully going to start working on for 2024 and 2025. So hopefully be doing those soon. Cannot wait to hear them or read them or whatever format they will take. Well, thank you. I'm Fun City Cinema on Instagram, Jason Dash Bailey on Letterboxd, where you can find under my list the top fives for every episode of the show, including this one. Mike, where can people find you? I am at Brainwashed Lib on Twitter. Please come talk to me about movies because my Twitter is terrible right now. <laughs> terrible. It means I'm following all the right people, but it's terrible <laughs> information. And of course, if you like the show and think other people might like it too, please leave us a rating and or a review on your podcatcher of choice. There are just so goddamn many movie podcasts out there. Your recommendations really do help us out. Mike, before we go, what is your parting recommendation for 1999? Jason Bailey, my recommendation for 99 is a crossover of my interests in a way that will absolutely blow your fucking mind. It's called The Cup. It's uh -huh. a uh, Tibetan language film by Kiense Norbu. Excuse me if I can't pronounce it well. It was Bataan's first ever submission for the Academy Award for Foreign Film. And all of that makes it sound so dramatically like more than it is. It's this amazing movie about this kid who lives. He's a Tibetan monk. He lives on a monastery in India. And he really, really, really wants to see the 1998 World Cup final. And he but they don't have a TV at the monastery. And yeah. so he's trying to like, you know, he's got to raise some money. He's got to find a way 
that he can rent the TV. He gets kicked out of like the local sports bar for being too excited and getting in people's way. And it's an amazing movie that crosses Tibetan Buddhism with World Cup soccer, but is actually, of course, about humanity. Of course. And ultimately about desire. I see. And understanding our own desire. It's not a sports movie. Like they're they're trying to get to the World Cup, but you know, to yeah. watch the World Cup, but that's just sort of the you know, the chalice, you know what I mean? That's just sort of like the 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 gold bar at the end. Uh I promise it's not a sports movie. It's wonderful, dude. And it's uh and yeah, anyway, I, I just I'm trying to figure out a way to describe it to you in a way that you would actually ever watch it, because I know <laughs> that you hate Buddhism and you hate soccer and you hate both of what? those things more after a year of doing a podcast with me than you did before. <laughs> Wait, I don't I don't hate Buddhism. What a whore. Like, are are you are you trying to get me like excommunicated from society? I don't hate Buddhism. I just when you tell me it's a movie about Buddhism and World Cup soccer, I'm like, well, that's not interesting to me. <laughs> but of course, like all good movies, it's actually a movie about being a human in the world today yes. and about Very our good. relationships and about understanding how the things that we desire in this world uh, impact those around us. And mm. the, it ha the end of the movie is, I think most American viewers or Western viewers would find the end of the movie um, a little simplistic for the setup. Mm -hmm. You know what I mm -hmm. mean? But the way the end of the movie sort of mimics the end of, of Tibetan stories, the way Tibetan stories end is just like I such see. a beautiful little kiss on the end of this wonderful movie. So The Cup, 1999. Can't recommend it highly enough. How about you? Well, my movie also is, um, uh, 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 you know, it's about being human and about the how the things we desire impact those around us. Uh, I'm talking, of course, about John McTiernan's remake of The Thomas Crown Affair, um, <laughs> which, you know, there were a lot of incredible, thought-provoking, amazing prestige movies in 1999. We talked about some of them today. We talked about them last season. Of course, my favorite of the, of the year, mine, is Magnolia, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but, you know, I think in 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 all of that talk, it's it's easy to lose focus on the fact that we had in the late summer, in August of 1999, a an R rated sexy heist movie for grownups with grown ass people in it. Like the two leads were both in their 40s and they're hot as hell together Um it has a terrific setup. It's got a smart screenplay by Leslie Dixon and the closing sequence. Oh, oh, I get the little goosebumps. The closing, <laughs> like, first of all, was the first time I'd ever heard Sinner Man by Nina Simone. So like, this is like a core memory movie, but the closing sequence in which he has to put back the painting that he has stolen from the Metropolitan Museum of Art is one of my favorite set pieces in any heist movie ever um it's a light entertainment it's nowhere it's nowhere near as thought-provoking as the great movies that we talk about when we talk about 99 but i throw on thomas crown affair at least twice a year uh and i'm not one here to be all like oh better than the original but you know how many times i've watched the original i've watched it once so that's my <laughs> that's my big 99 it's better than the original i think it's better than the original. i love that movie it's funny i just watched thank you um, i i rewatched charade this weekend which i haven't seen like 35 years and i'm like 
why can't every movie kind of be like this? Yes. Like, and it's the same, it's the same vibe as Thomas Crown Affair. Where yes. It's like, yeah, but you have like good looking movie stars and they're out to get something and there's double crossing. And then, you know, James Coburn, whoever shows up, it's like, I do, I, there's some, there's, that is a genre that is just gone. It's not a genre. It's just a feeling that they, yes. I would love to get those kind of movies made. Cause when they try to do it, when they try to engineer that, it's so forced, but a movie like that, it's like, God, that, that was a really good underrated movie. It really was. And also a light touch that John McTiernan does not get enough credit for, frankly. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Thank you again, Brian. Thank you guys. This is so much fun. Thank, I really appreciate it. Thanks, man. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Jason. And thank you for listening. Sweet and clear. It was a very 